Please take your copies of God's Word and open with me to Luke chapter 6. Today in our studies through Luke's Gospel, we are uh, examining verses 12 through 16, the calling of the twelve apostles. If you picked up an ESV on the way in, that's on page 862. Luke chapter 6, today looking at verses 12 through 16. Before we read this text together, please join me in seeking the Lord's blessing and favor upon it. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we confess that we come often dull to your word. We come to your word which is sharp and living and active, and our hearts are hard, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Concerned with many of the concerns of our days and our week as we come into your house, perhaps not prepared for the Sabbath as we ought, perhaps not seeking you in prayer as we ought, but, O oh Lord, you are the one who is able to overcome all of our weaknesses, all of our temptations, and all of our distractions, and so we pray that as we hear you speak to us, we would be cut to the quick. We pray that you would open your word before us. And show us the glory of our Savior in it. Pray that you would expose sin and draw us to faith and repentance. Give us, O oh Lord, life and sustain us and persevere us. Cause us to persevere in that life. And so work in us that good and perfect work which you have begun, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Well, parents, uh, those of you who are uh, newly parents, those of you who have been parents for a very long time, how is it that you prepare your children when you know that you have to leave them for a while? Oh, when your kids are just born, you, you try not to leave them if you can, uh, if you can swing it. So they go with you everywhere. There they are in the baby carrier and the stroller, and there they are uh, in the car seat, and they're waiting at the doctor with you, and they're at the dentist's office, and they are everywhere, and you protect your children with your presence. But then that blessed and glorious day comes when you find a babysitter, and off you go unencumbered. And it's wonderful, and it's terrifying all in the same breath. But then I'm told, at least, that uh, the day comes when you can leave your children alone, and it's terrifying all over again. You stand by the door and you go over the, the emergency contacts and all the procedures and you call, you check in every hour to make sure that your house is still standing. But that's good. And as uh, your children grow older, uh, the more you learn to trust them, they get to do other things like stay home by themselves for a week of vacation. Eventually they'll go off to college. Eventually they'll leave and they'll start a family. And these are all good things. Eventually you know that you will have to leave them for good. 
and you pray, if you're a parent, that it will happen late the way that it should. You know that a day is coming when you won't be there to check in. You won't be there to watch over and to counsel. And so how do you prepare your children for your departure? Well, that's the context behind uh, these few short verses that we've read. You notice that the conflict, if you've been with us for the last several weeks, you've noticed that the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees has been escalating steadily. They began by opposing his disciples over trifling matters, like who they decided to eat with and, and uh, what they decided to do, and if they were following the traditions of all of the rabbis and the teachers. And they got more bold and more bold as they went on, and they began to, uh, to confront Jesus himself over matters of the law, over very important things like Sabbath observance. And now this is coming to a head. They are getting bolder, they are getting angrier, and they are getting more and more bloodthirsty. And we ended last week... In verse 11, they were filled with fury and they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. That's not a surprise for Jesus. He knew all along that his ministry was trending in this direction. He knew all along, even if his disciples didn't yet know it, that the more he continued with this gospel preaching, the more he continued being among the people and showing who he was, the closer he was getting to the shadow of Calvary. And he knew a day was coming when he would have to leave his church. And they would continue on without him. Now, I, I know he doesn't really leave his church in one sense. The resurrected Lord, even after his death, the ascended Lord at the right hand of the Father is with his people until the end of the age. He sends his Holy Spirit to be a guide and to be a comfort and to lead his people into all truth. But things are about to change and fast, even if the disciples aren't aware of it. And so the question is, how does Jesus prepare his children, his church, for his departure? That's the context behind this very short passage. And the answer uh, begins, as so many other things began for Jesus, with prayer. That's the first thing we find in this passage, that Jesus prepares his church by committing his people to prayer. Take a look at verse 12. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. This isn't the first time that we've seen Jesus at prayer in Luke's gospel. In fact, it's the third time we've seen Jesus at prayer, and Luke seems to be establishing the pattern of Jesus' ministry. He began in chapter 3, at the beginning of his ministry, at his baptism, and Jesus was praying. And then in chapter 5, as the crowds are pressing in, as the stress of ministry to the multitudes is mounting, Jesus sneaks away for his, his secret retreat with the Lord. He would often go away into the desolate places, we're told, to pray to his Father in chapter 5. It was his secret haven. It was prayer with his father. It was the pattern of his ministry. But the prayer that we see in verse 12 here isn't about the secret sanctuary, not just about retreating from the world. This is a prayer that is born out of a burden. If it's possible to, to separate the feeling of anxiety from a sinful distrust in God's sovereignty, that's what's at the heart of our anxiety, by the way. We don't trust that the Lord is in control. But if it's, if it's possible to separate those feelings of anxiety from that distrust, that is what this prayer was. It was a need upon Jesus and upon his ministry. It felt like when you go to the dentist office and they lay that lead vest on your shoulders and they take the x-rays and you sit there and you sink down. And this was the prayer that Jesus offered. He prayed all night. It speaks of perseverance. 
It speaks of Jacob wrestling with the angel. Jesus prayed all night because he had something that he had to speak to his father, and it could not wait until morning. Don't you often wish that you knew what Jesus was praying? We have one of those wonderful passages, John chapter 17, where Jesus' prayer is actually recorded for us. And it's been a balm to many weary souls throughout the ages of the Christian church. But don't you wish that when we saw Jesus praying all night, nine hours of communion between the Son and the Father, don't you wish there was a tape recorder there? Don't you wish you knew what he was saying? We don't have a transcript, of course. And, and we ought not to just conjecture, but we do know enough about Jesus' prayer life to make a pretty educated guess about the things that Jesus was praying during this night of prayer. I suggest that probably the first thing and the most important thing that, that took up the majority of his time is that Jesus was praying for God's provision, that the Lord would provide the right men to do the work that needed to be done to establish the church on earth. That's clear between the connection in verses 12 and 13. Uh, we see Jesus went out, he continued all night in prayer to God, and when day came. So night turns into day and prayer turns into selection. Jesus is out and he's praying for God to provide the right men. He's perhaps going through the list of all of the multitudes, even the many disciples that are following him, and he's praying for discernment. Lord, is it him? Is it this one? Is it that one? Would you have me call him? Lord, provide what you need and what the church needs to get going in the world. He's praying for God's provision. In fact, that's exactly what we see in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, the calling of the 12 shows up at the very beginning of chapter 10, but the very end of chapter 9, verses 37 and 38, records this. Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Surely Jesus was practicing what he preached. Jesus knew the work that was ahead, the, the immense work involved in bearing witness to Christ and in teaching the world the word of God. And so he prayed and he asked the God of all supply to provide the men that the gospel needed. He's praying for provision most likely. He's probably also praying for protection. He knew not only the work that was involved, but he knew what his apostles were going to face. He knew the persecution and the famine and the sword and the whips and the beatings and the lances and the hatred that they would face. He knew that they would be just like their master, and if they were just like their master, the world would hate them because the world hated him first, and he knew he was sending them out as sheep amidst the wolves. And so surely he was praying for the Lord to protect them. He knew that most of the men in this list would be assaulted and martyred. He knew that Satan would try to snare them and remind them of their faults. That Satan would try to cause them to doubt their calling and their effectiveness for Christ. He knew the dangers of their ministry and he knew the weakness of their hearts. And so surely the Lord is praying for God to protect his apostles. That was the pattern of Jesus' prayer for them. Remember Jesus' words to Peter in the upper room on that night. Simon, Satan has demanded that he should have you, that he would sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That's the way Jesus prayed for his apostles. Remember Jesus' prayer to the Father that same night. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them safe 
from the evil one. Jesus regularly prayed for his apostles because he knew how dangerous it was to be an ambassador for Christ in a world that hates the very sound of his name. So surely Jesus was praying for their protection. Surely he sought the comfort of their souls and assurance and holiness and sensitivity. And we know that Jesus was probably praying that because that's still what he's praying for you. He knows what you face. He knows the hatred and the persecution. He knows just the daily difficulty of being a believer and maintaining your faith in a world that is hard and difficult and in a world where you face affliction and danger. And so Hebrews tells us that he always lives to make intercession for the saints. Most likely, Jesus was praying for God's provision. Most likely, he was praying for God's protection. And it's quite possible, I think, that Jesus was also praying that he would be able to submit his will to the Father. In the New Testament, there is only one other night of prayer quite like this one. It's another night uh, in solitude on a mountain. It's a night in desperate agonizing prayer. It's a night of sweating blood. It's a night and a prayer that probably would have continued until morning if it had not been interrupted by a conspiracy disguised as a kiss. And in that prayer, Jesus was wrestling with the Lord and wrestling with his human will because he knew what was coming in the next 16 hours or so. And he was alone. The apostles were sleeping. And Jesus was alone and he prayed a prayer of submission and release. Nevertheless, he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And so is it possible that on this mountain and on this night, Jesus is also praying a prayer very similar? Is it possible that as he goes through that list of 12, one of those names sticks out? And he knows that one of these men that he's about to call and about to draw near is a traitor. He is a backstabber. He is poison incarnate. And he's about to call him so close that he can do the damage that he know he will do. And is it possible that Jesus is wrestling with his own human will and with the Father and praying a prayer that is becoming increasingly familiar to him? Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Now, we can't be sure. We can't be certain. We, we don't have a transcript, but we know that this was the pattern of Jesus' prayer life. We also know that the pattern of Jesus' prayer life is meant to be the pattern of our prayer life. Isn't it striking to you that Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh, Jesus Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Jesus Christ who is anointed with the Spirit beyond measure, isn't it striking to you that Jesus Christ felt the need to spend so much time in prayer and he would regularly go off into the desolate places to be alone with his father. He's surrounded daily by people who thought they knew who he was and what he was about, but he would go off and he would pray to the Lord who really knew him, who knew why he was there and knew how he had been sent and knew what was in store for him. Isn't it striking to you that the Lord Jesus wouldn't commit any big decision or wouldn't make any big move in his ministry without first taking it to the Lord in prayer. And how sad, how vain when we think that we don't need what Jesus needed. How sad when we neglect prayer with the only one who really knows us, 
better than we know ourselves, better than we can discern our own hearts, the one who knows us and loves us and has forgiven us in Jesus Christ, the one who loves to hear the cries of his children and his ear is attentive to those who call out to him. How sad when we neglect the Lord who desires to hear his children. How arrogant. How pitiful when we think that we've not trained ourselves through practice to delight in prayer for more than 10 minutes at a time, let alone an hour, let alone a whole night. Dear friends, we ought to pray that the Lord would make this pattern of prayer our pattern of prayer. That the Lord would teach us to be like our Savior, to persevere in prayer, to find delight in prayer, to be driven by such a deep sense of our need and our insufficiency for the things that we meet with in our daily lives that we can do nothing else but pray. You've probably heard that quote from Martin Luther. Some of his quotes, it's hard to tell if he actually said them, but he, he, he actually wrote down quite a few of them. And the quote from Martin Luther is uh, that when he is, he is busy, he always finds at least two hours a day to pray. And when he's very busy, he prays for four hours. I don't know that I've ever been that busy, and I don't know if you have either. To be driven by a sense of need, not to put off prayer, not to say, I've got to do what I've got to do to get through my daily list. I've got to just deal with my schedule. There's so much coming at me. I don't know that I've ever been so busy that I have to say, no, I need, I need another hour of prayer before I get to these things. But oh, that the pattern of Jesus' prayer would be our pattern of prayer. Forget Martin Luther. He's another servant like so many. A wise man in many regards. Don't look to Martin Luther, look to Jesus, who had a momentous decision, a turning point in his ministry, something weighing on his shoulders, and what did he do? Sleep fled, and he spent the night in prayer. This is how he prepared his people. This is the model that we have for while he is gone, Jesus committed his people to prayer. Secondly, we find that Jesus entrusted his church to the apostles. It's our second point, that Jesus prepared his church by entrusting his church to the apostles. Take a look at verse 13. When day came, he called his disciples, and he chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Now, that last word is very important because in all the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in all of the different lists of the twelve, it is only Luke who right here at this point tells us that they were named apostles. Matthew and Mark, they tend to to deal more with what they were called to do. And Luke gets to that later in chapter 9, that they were called to go out and to preach and to heal and to cast out demons. He's concerned with what they were called to do, but Luke seems to be especially concerned with what they were called to be and who they were called to be. They were called to be apostles. He's drawing our attention to it. Now, you probably know that in just a very basic sense, to be an apostle merely means that you are sent out. It's taken from the Greek word apostello, to send, to, to, to send forth. And so these men were the ones who were sent by Jesus. They were sent out. But in a much more formal sense, this meant that they were Christ's ambassadors. They were his official representatives bearing his seal of approval in the world. This meant that they went out and they proclaimed a message in Jesus' name. It means that they went out and they established churches with Jesus' authority. It means that they taught people with Jesus' truth. Do you remember that passage 
in 1 Corinthians where Paul is dealing with people who are married and not married and single and thinking about being married and in various different stages. And Paul says at one point, he quotes Christ. He says, now the Lord says, not I. But then he turns and he says, now the Lord hasn't said, but I say. And some people point at that and they say, well, there's a difference here. The apostles clearly think that they don't have authority. That's not what's happening. Paul is saying, the Lord hasn't said it, but I'm telling you as an apostle, I'm giving you what the Lord wants you to know on this. They were official ambassadors. This is made explicit in the rest of the New Testament that these men bore the seal of Christ's approval, that Christ was laying these men as the foundation of his church. Consider Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Paul tells us the church is comprised of living stones, quote, saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This is what it meant for them to be apostles. Jesus was calling them to be the foundation of his church. See the same thing in Revelation. Chapter 21, John sees a vision of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. And the new Jerusalem, by the way, is a place that is constructed a lot like the Holy of Holies. It's a perfect cube in all directions. It's a place where God will make his dwelling with man, where the glory of the Lord will fill it night and day, where God will be with his people and nothing impure will ever enter. And it comes down out of heaven. And we're told in verses 12 and 14, two things. First, John says that the city had a great high wall with 12 gates. And at the 12 gates, angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. Twelve gates, twelve tribes of Israel, and you can trace that significance through the Old Testament. But then in verse 14, and the wall of the city with all of those gates had twelve foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. This is what it means for Jesus to call these men as apostles. He is laying them as the foundation stones of his church. These were the men who were being called to fulfill God's promise to Abraham to give him many sons that would be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles, and to bless every family of the earth, to go out and to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, beginning in Jerusalem and Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what it meant for them to be apostles. It meant that upon their witness and by their message, the truth of the gospel was validated. Now, there's a significance for us in this today. The significance is that despite the perpetual vogue to pit Jesus' words against the apostles' words, we don't actually have the option of ignoring what the apostles have taught. They are the foundation, the ones that Christ has established and put his seal of approval on, and what they taught, the Lord has spoken to his people through them. You know how it goes. Somebody brings up some hot-button issue, something that the Scriptures speak very clearly on, but we don't like to hear in our modern sensitive age. Something like homosexuality. And then, you know, those closed-minded, orthodox, biblical Christians bring up Romans, as they always do, and then they bring up 1 Corinthians, and then they bring up Jude, and then they bring up Revelation as saying, the Lord has told us this ought not to be so, and what's the response? Yeah, but Jesus never said anything about that, right? 
And it's really just a matter of who you're going to listen to. Are you going to listen to Jesus, who never spoke to that issue, or are you going to listen to the men that came after Jesus and they put on their little air of superiority? Don't worry, I feel superior about lots of other things too. And it becomes this issue, are you going to listen to Jesus or are you going to listen to those other guys? Now, if you just even put aside the issue that Jesus upheld the entire Old Testament biblical sexual ethic and all of its condemnations of homosexuality in all of its forms, if you can put that whole thing to the side, you're still left with the issue of does Jesus want you to listen to the men that he's commissioned? You still have to deal with that. Would Jesus have you listen to the apostles that he selected and commissioned and laid as the foundation of the whole Christian movement that he was getting off the ground? This is only one issue, and this is the one that seems really comfy for us in conservative churches to point out to the rest of the world and say, you know how this goes, <laughs> look how great we are. But you could pick any number of examples. You could multiply these over and over and over again, and one person over here doesn't like what the apostles have to say about male headship in the church and in the family, and somebody else over over there doesn't like what the apostles taught about Jews and Gentiles and all sorts of ethnicities worshiping together in one body through the gospel, and somebody else doesn't like how the apostles keep talking about predestination, and before they had done anything good or bad or were even born, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, and who should we listen to? You can pick your favorite example. You could multiply them. You could pick so many theological pet peeves, but the significance is that we cannot ignore the apostles. We cannot separate their teaching from the teaching of Jesus, because if we do, we end up living in a house with no foundation. Many of you know that just recently, just this week, we purchased our first home. And we went through a lot of inspections, and you know if you've purchased a home what that entails. And there are some things that I could live with. It's a kind of a fixer-upper. That's okay. I'm all right with that, and it has some issues that need to be fixed, and there's some siding issues, and there's some drainage issues, and there's some uh, all kinds of issues. What I could not abide is a bad foundation. Because if you're buying a house with a bad foundation, you might as well just walk away and burn it down. We cannot ignore the teaching of the apostles because through them Christ has laid the foundation of the church. It's that important. We cannot ignore the ones that Jesus has established. You see, the Lord has called these men to be the foundation of his church. He entrusted his church to the apostles, but he also called these men to be a portrait of his power. When you consider the list of these 12 names, it is staggering that they could have accomplished anything together at all. If you look at them simply through human wisdom and, and just the diversity between these men, you've got men like Matthew, the tax collector, the Roman collaborator, and he's ministering alongside, what's it say, Simon, who was called the Zealot. The Zealots, by the way, were a political faction in Judea who wanted to do everything they could, including inciting rebellion, which led to the downfall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. They wanted to do everything they could to get rid of the Romans. And Jesus puts them together and he says, you're both apostles now. Work it out. In modern terms, this is, this is more... Uh, this is, uh, this is more polarizing than saying that this list included men like Bernie Sanders and Rudy Giuliani. And you put them together and see what happens. 
There's a diversity here in the, in the background of these men. You have impetuous Peter. He runs headlong into every single controversy with his mouth wide enough that his whole foot can fit in. And he's ministering alongside men like Bartholomew. What do we know about Bartholomew? Nothing. Nothing. We don't know where he lived. We don't know where he ministered. We don't know how he died. He is silent, yet he was an apostle. Somebody who always has to be at the forefront and somebody who always hangs back. And there's this diversity, and the Lord puts them together, and he says, I'm going to make you apostles because I'm going to work through you. You have men like Thomas, the doubter. And he's an apostle together with James and John, the sons of thunder. You wonder how that dynamic works out. You have this ragtag bunch of mismatched ministers, and yet the Holy Spirit is at work honing their gifts and shaping their temperaments and making them a unified body for the sake of Jesus. You've got this diverse group of men, and you also have this group of men whose sin goes before them like a bad reputation. And we tend to focus on Judas here, and we'll talk about Judas in a little bit. But don't forget Peter. Don't forget Peter, who was so bold that he always said the right thing, except for when he was saying the wrong thing. The man who was so bold as to take Jesus Christ aside after he has just pronounced, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what's the next word we find recorded from Peter? Never, Lord, you shall never do this. We have Peter, who is so bold that he will cut off an ear to defend his master, and in three hours' time, he melts into a puddle because he's been questioned by a slave girl. Is that the man that you would have chosen? Or would have you chosen somebody who's a little bit more stable to be an apostle? Somebody you could depend on, somebody that you knew would always be a rock like he was named to be. But Jesus picked Peter. He chose Peter and he chose a host of sinners like him because he was demonstrating his power and his skill in shaping a beautiful church out of dull and broken tools. That's what Jesus was doing. He was making these men a portrait of his power. And so he chose diverse men, and he chose sinful men, and he also chose common men. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, after Peter had a chance to address the Jewish ruling council, we read this. It says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And then this next phrase. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Can you imagine if that were said of you? I'm astonished because <laughs> they're just pretty common. Uh, there's not a whole lot special about that person, but here's, here's what gets me. I think they've been with Jesus because I can see it all over them. They don't have a whole lot of degrees. They don't, they don't have a great CV. I wouldn't be impressed by anything that they've, they've done or they said, but they've been with Jesus. And there's something. And Jesus chose common men. This is how J.C. Ryle puts it. Four of them were fishermen, at least. Not one was famous or noble or rich or well-connected. Not one of them was a scribe or a priest or an elder or a ruler of the people. All were poor, and that even means Matthew the tax collector, because he walked away from his lucrative career. They were common. There was nothing special about these men, but this is who Jesus chose. He chose men in whom... Uh, Jesus could display the unmatched power of his spirit at work, and that is still Jesus' pattern. Consider your calling, Paul writes. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. God chose what is foolish in the world 
God chose what is weak in the world. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, and that's what he does. Jesus gathers a diverse group of overlooked, sinful nobodies, and he fashions them into a temple, a monument of his power and his perfection and his goodness, a testament to the grace of the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of his people. He takes this ragtag bunch of believers who are nobodies, and he builds them on top of the foundation of nobodies that he chose. And he makes his church into the body that has no room to boast of earthly splendor or wisdom or impressiveness. And he does it so that we would become a portrait of his power. This is what he was preparing his church for. And he did it by committing his people to prayer. And he did it by entrusting his church to the apostles. But finally, this is our third point here, that Jesus prepared his church by including a traitor in his fellowship. It is an interesting detail that in every single one of the list of the apostles, except for the one in Acts because he's already dead, in every single one of the list of the apostles, Judas is there. Neither Matthew nor Mark nor Luke they take the time to write in a footnote and say, well, you know, Judas hung out with the apostles, and Judas mostly got along with the apostles, but we all knew that he wasn't really one of us from the beginning. We put up with him. We just sort of went along with, oh, that's Judas, there he goes again. That's not what happened. Judas is included by every single one. And Judas went out on mission just like Andrew and just like Philip and James and Matthew. Judas preached and he healed and he cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And on the night when Jesus told the twelve that one of them was going to betray him, they all looked around and said, what? Who? They had no idea that Judas was the wolf. Nobody said, oh, yep, here we go. I knew it. I've been watching that guy. He's kind of shady. Nobody had any idea because he was right there. Nobody knew, but Jesus knew. John chapter 6, verse 64 says, Jesus knew from the beginning those who were, those who were, um, excuse me, Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Have you ever stopped to consider that Jesus, knowing full well what Judas was going to do, decided to draw him near rather than keep him away? Jesus was not surprised. Jesus knew before he ever called him, and yet Jesus brought him near. He brought him close enough to do the damage that he knew he was going to commit. We don't have to wonder why Jesus did it. He did it to prepare his church. He did it for his people. He did it for one as an act of love and sacrifice. He chose Judas while the Pharisees and religious leaders thought they were meeting in secret and plotting an attack on Jesus that he didn't know anything about. Here's how Mark puts it. Mark chapter 3 says, They held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him, but Jesus is ahead of their conspiracy. Jesus knew exactly what was going on, and he chose Judas so that at the end he could say, Nobody takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And this charge, this authority I've received from my father, and he's praying all night about who it should be, and he comes out the next morning and says, Judas, you're one of them. He knew what he was doing. He was sacrificing himself. 
It was an act of love because Jesus knew that if his church is going to be prepared at all for his, his absence, for his departure, that what they really need is to have their sins taken care of. And if their sins are going to be taken care of, then his perfect sinless blood must be shed. Jesus has to be taken away by, uh, by deceit and by injustice in order for our guilt to be broken. Jesus had to offer himself up on the altar of God to make atonement for us in order to be ransomed out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his light. And so Jesus chose Judas. With his eyes wide open, Jesus chose the man who was going to kiss his cheek and sell him to Calvary for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus chose Judas because he would rather save sinners than save himself. That's why Jesus chose Judas and he included a traitor in his fellowship because it was an act of sacrifice. Jesus also chose Judas as a warning to his church. If ever, folks, if ever there was a man who could demonstrate the fact that no earthly position, that no earthly privilege can secure salvation, it's Judas. What did Judas have going for him, outwardly speaking? Everything. Every spiritual advantage you could imagine in this life. For three years, Judas walked with Jesus and listened to Jesus and watched Jesus heal and raise the dead. For three years, he was with him. He was included in the inner circle of the apostles. He experienced the power of the kingdom of God as he himself engaged in healing and miracles. Judas himself took the message of Christ to other sinners and proclaimed good news to them. And on the night of the Passover, G Judas, rather, was seated so close to Jesus that Jesus could tell John, the one who's going to betray me is the one that I hand this piece of bread to. He wasn't at the foot of the table. He was next to the Savior. The whole time, Judas got to look into the eyes that you long to look into. He got to touch the hands that healed the leper. He got to listen to the voice that calmed the waves and stilled the sea. Judas had everything except for love for Jesus. He had no faith, he had no repentance, he had no salvation. And this is a warning to the church. Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who would betray him. Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who did not believe. And this is a warning not to be like Judas. It's a warning that outward ceremony and standing an advantage in the church cannot save you. I will not be saved on the last day because I preached this message to you. You will not be saved on the last day because you told somebody else about Jesus. You will not be saved on the last day because your parents were Christians or because you were baptized in a church or because you've been a member in good standing of an evangelical church that loves the scriptures and preaches the gospel. None of those things account for salvation on the last day. And Jesus knows every single heart and he knows the ones who are just playing church. And this is a warning. Do not follow Judas. What did Judas lack? He lacked faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. He lacked an understanding of sin that drew him to the feet of Jesus to cry out and to repent. You know, in the end, Peter and Judas weren't so unalike, were they? They weren't so different. Each one betrayed Jesus in a different way. 
It says in the scriptures that Peter began to call down curses. He probably took the Lord's name in vain saying, I tell you, I don't know that man. What's the difference? Peter repented. And Judas fell into despair. And he ended his life. Do not be like Judas. Apart from faith and repentance, we're no better than Judas. We're no better than Demas. We're no better than Esau. We're no better than any devil in the deepest pit of hell who knows all of those important things and those truths and those doctrines that make us so proud of ourselves and yet have no faith and have no love for the Lord Jesus Christ and are accursed. But friends, Jesus is preparing his church for this reality that nothing but faith in him can save. And he does it by including a traitor in his midst. He does it by entrusting you to the foundation of the apostles and he does it by praying for his church and his people. Oh, may this be the pattern of our lives. As we walk with him, may we trust him and may we follow him. May we turn aside from the warning that we see here and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and live. Please join me in prayer.